So welcome back to another episode of Prosperity Egg Out Loud. On this episode, I have Jerry Winicky joining me. Jerry is an agronomist with Clark Agri Service that has spent the majority of his career working with growers in the Niagara Peninsula. So thank you so much for joining me, Jerry. Glad to be here. So this episode is going to be a little bit different from some that I've done in the past, but I think it's super timely and a really amazing topic. So one thing that you have done, Jerry, over the years with your growers is, you know, first off, you've cultivated just an amazing sense of community and friendship with some of the producers in your area. And one of the things that's come out of this has been the fact that you've organized farm tours with a lot of these growers that you can call your friends. And, you know, you've toured places all over the world, South America, and I think that's amazing. So I am excited to learn about some of those farm tours that you've been on. Um, how, how many tours have you been on so far, Jerry? Uh, we've been on uh, five tours and we were scheduled to uh, go this past uh, year, uh, but with the trip was canceled because of COVID-19. So, uh, we're tentatively waiting to, to make our sixth trip once the COVID-19 restrictions are taken away. That's awesome. And what prompted you to begin organizing farm tours with your growers? Well, actually, it started, uh, we took a group of customers down to the Farm Progress Show in Indiana back about seven, eight years ago. And uh, while we were in the hotel having breakfast, lined up in front of the waffle maker, uh, two guys got talking to each other, one of my customers and another fella, uh, turned out that they were related, turned out they were cousins and had never met each other before. And it just so happened that the uh, other fellow was from Brazil. Uh, so they, of course, hit it off. And uh, that winter, uh, my customer flew down to Brazil to meet with him to visit his operation in southern Brazil. Uh, when my customer came back, uh, he had the name of a uh, travel agent that was uh, willing to host the farm tour if we were interested. Uh, it did not take very long once I advertised the tour uh, to get it filled with about 40 participants. And that's where the whole thing started. That's incredible. 40 participants. That's a, that's a lot of people to go with. That's amazing. The uptake. Um, and have you been working with the same tour company since you began? Uh, we used the, uh, that individual travel agent uh, for a subsequent trip that we did to Argentina. Uh, but uh, since then, we have been using, uh, we used a local uh, travel agent, Otto Listowell, that did a really good job on two of our trips. And a lot of the uh, referrals are coming from people who have been to other countries. They come back with names. So we've had no problems getting very, very good uh, travel agents to coordinate our tour itineraries that we want. Uh, I've been very, very happy. So we've worked with four different ones, and uh, this fifth one would have been uh, the one going to uh, Poland and the Ukraine this past year, which uh, we've got it on hold right now. So That's amazing because it, it's tough. You're a busy man to try and plan a, a trip like that. You really need somebody that is well-versed in the area that you're traveling to. Yeah, one of the things I learned about the travel agency business is everybody has contacts in other parts of the world, and uh, they tend to help each other out. And uh, it really wasn't as much my my uh, 
responsibility was basically setting up the itinerary stops that we wanted to to see. And everything else, the hotels, the meals, the busing, everything was done by the travel agent, uh, which w- really made my job easy. Really made my, my job was to recruit the customers uh, and basically identify what we did want to see when we went to these particular countries. So it was pretty easy. Right. And, you know, you've been on five tours so far. Is it mostly the same group of people that go every year? Or you've had some different people depending on the trip. Yeah, I would say uh, 75% of the participants are the same people year after year. Uh, but we do get uh, new people depending on where we're going because they have interests or family or something in that part of the world. So, But the, generally speaking, there's a main core of about, I would say, two-thirds of the group that have been going on every trip. That's awesome. That's awesome. So let's dive into the places that you've been. And why don't we start at the beginning with that very first trip? If you can just run through and let us know why you decided to go to that country in particular, what you saw and what the focus was of each of those trips. Okay. So of course the first trip was uh, uh, recommend came as a recommendation from my customer, which was really nice because his uh, we were down in the Southern part of Brazil, uh, state of Paraná, which is an area uh, where the settlement of Brazil really took place uh, initially when uh, people immigrated from Europe after the war. Uh, it's a very, very strong uh, Dutch community. Uh, mind you, we traveled almost uh, 800 miles across the southern end of Brazil by bus, but we spent a lot of time in the area where uh, our my customers' uh, family were. Uh, Fortunately, they have a large, large agricultural co-op. That's the system that the Dutch use in lots of parts of the world, where they work collectively, growing their crops, selling their crops, processing. Uh, So that big co-op was great because it enabled us to access factories, processing plants, farms, uh, and uh, it really opened the doors to a lot of places that most people would never get a chance to visit. Brazil, uh, I mean, you read a lot about it. So there's really two big areas of Brazil. It's the south where, which was originally uh, settled, uh, and now the north, which Mato Grosso, which is, if you picture the United States, uh, Mato Grosso is like the Midwest of the USA, and uh, we were down in the along the Gulf of Mexico type thing. So there's quite a vast area of land between the two areas, but we were in the area that was predominantly settled many, many years ago, uh, well-established infrastructure, what have you. Uh, and uh, those people are doing well down there. They're doing well. Good. That's awesome. And when you say well-established infrastructure, because I haven't been to Brazil, it's on the bucket list. I'd like to get there eventually. But one of the things we think of when we think of South America is just, you know, the poor infrastructure compared to what we're used to here. So in those well-established areas, what's the infrastructure like there? Well, uh, every country that we visited on these tours had an underlying uh, problem. And the major problem in Brazil, in my estimation, was transportation. Um, Picture uh, a soybean grower in Iowa uh, having to uh, load his soybeans onto a truck and having it shipped all the way down to Miami to get it loaded onto a boat. <laughs> so there is, 
this that thirty-five uh, percent of the cost or the production costs of a soybean producer in the north part of Brazil, in the Mato Grosso area, goes to trucking, uh, and they have no infrastructure running east-west in the country at all. Uh, there is a very very large uh, lobby by the trucking companies. They pretty well dominate the transportation of all the goods throughout the. Uh, country in Brazil. Uh, so you don't see rail lines, you don't see any shipping lines or anything like that. There's The big companies are trying to get these developed, but there's a lot of resistance because there's such a strong lobby from the Trucking Association in Brazil. And uh, giving an example, uh, the, these trucks are were coming from the north down to be loaded up at one of the biggest ports, uh, Paranagua. Uh, this there was a parking lot uh, outside of the terminal that was 100 acres in size, and it was loaded with trucks sitting waiting to be unloaded when wow. the day we were there. 100-acre field full of trucks loaded with soybeans waiting to load ships. They were loading eight big ocean vessels the day we were there. Uh, we went for a tour of the harbor. There was 50-plus boats sitting out in the ocean waiting to be called in to be loaded to export beans away from that particular port. Wow. Just an amazing, amazing movement of grain. That's incredible. But unfortunately, but unfortunately uh, that the southern part is looked after fairly well because they're very close to the, the major exporting port. But the fellows up in Mato Grossa, uh, they're struggling. Uh, uh, yeah, they've got lots of land and they've got lots of potential but their transportation costs are a very, very large part of their production costs. Yeah, that's very hard for us to fathom, especially where we are being so close to the Great Lakes, you know, like trucking costs for us are fairly minimal. In terms of the farmers that you would have met and the farms that you saw down there, Jerry, like how would you compare them to the farms here um, in terms of how progressive they are? Um, I found the... uh, Brazil to be right up to snuff with our, our growers. Uh, again, we were exposed mostly to uh, this large Dutch uh, co-op. They had their own agronomists on staff. They did their own research. Uh, they basically excluded the universe or the government people uh, from any sources of information. Most of the information they gathered for their operations was done by doing internal work. So they were pretty well self-contained. And the nice thing about it is they, the fact that they were at the Farm Progress Show, they do spend a lot of money sending some of their directors to meetings around the world to improve their technology base. Uh, So they've got a pretty good model there. Now, what's happening happening in the north of uh, Brazil, I'm really not as familiar. I think that's a little bit more, uh, it's not a co-op type system, but where we were, in those states along the southern end of Brazil, uh, they had things pretty well figured out. Okay, now that's good to yeah. know. If you could go back to Brazil, because it's it's huge. Obviously, you know you can't see can't see everything. But if you could go back, was there anything that you didn't get to see, or anything that you would have liked to have seen more of while you were there? Uh, like I said, we were fortunate to have traveled about. 800 miles across the whole bottom of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would, I mean, many of our growers who are soybean producers would have liked to have gone up to Mato Grosso 
and seeing those acres, those fields that are a thousand or two thousand acres in size. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a few a few of my customers who said we we'd go back, but we do want to go to the north now right. and really see big, the big big soybean frontier that's out there. But uh, uh, no, it was a very uh, informative. It was a very clean country. Uh, everything was modern. Uh, it was it was a, a very good trip, and the fact that we had a very good translator, I guess I'm going to stress that more than anything. Uh, our travel agent spoke very well English and very well in uh, in Dutch and in in German, uh, so he was very good at interpreting questions and answers. And to me, if I forget to tell you this later in the seminar, the most important thing is having a good interpreter when you're in a foreign country. Uh, our trip that we took uh, to one of the other countries, we had an interpreter. However, uh, he was not uh, able to translate our questions the way we had asked them or the answers that came back. And I think we lost a lot because of that. So it's very important that if you're going to go to a foreign country and if your travel agent can't speak the native language, then you hire somebody there who can because that you don't get any of the questions answered and you don't get into the inter internal information exchange between farmers that you really want to know about. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I guess somebody that is sort of versed in agriculture as well so that they can, you know, translate across because it's a bit of a different language. Yep. Yep. Does anybody down there speak English or if you're heading to South America, it is very much you need to be able to speak in that native tongue. Uh, no, I, I uh, the people we met a lot of people, a lot of the uh, people in the co-op who are doing international travel, whatever, could speak English very well, and uh, we were. It was nice because we could get a good exchange of information uh, with many, many different people uh, as a result of that. Unlike when we went to Argentina, uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, we went to Argentina a couple of years later. Uh, we were not able to communicate with the locals as well. And that really hurt on the getting the value out of the trip, unfortunately. Okay. And that's why I stress it is so important to have a translator who understands agriculture and agricultural terms. Uh, otherwise, uh, it gets lost in the translation. Okay. No, that's a very good message. So let's let's skip to Argentina then because that makes a bit of sense and maybe compare what you saw in Argentina yep. to Brazil. Okay. So Argentina, uh, their transportation system is ideal. They basically are like Canada. They have a major river that flows into the interior of the country. Uh, and that river allows them to have shipping facilities throughout the country so the need for trucking is a lot less than it was in Brazil. Uh, their transportation system was is like our St. Lawrence Seaway system in, in, in some ways. Okay. But they are definitely uh, held back by government uh, bureaucracy and just changes in government uh, over the years. Uh, government uh, interference has been their major drawback. Uh, you could see it uh, in the quality of the farms the infrastructure of the country. Uh, they were not as prosperous uh, in the areas that we traveled in compared to Brazil. Uh, the farmers did not have the equipment, did not have the infrastructure that you saw with the farmers in Brazil. And they all blame, they all blame their woes against the changes in government from, uh, from term to term. There's no consistency at all. 
Wow, that's difficult for sure. Yeah, yeah. What about the diversity in Argentina? So what kind of different firms did you see? Uh, basically, uh, there was very little difference in the agriculture between those two countries. Uh, probably the only uh, major change that I saw was there was a heck of a lot more uh, livestock production in Argentina. Uh, when they, you hear about the Pampas and all that, those dry land areas uh, in the beside the Andes Mountains, well, those areas there uh, were not good for crop production. There was a lot, a lot of beef uh, raised in Argentina, a lot of beef compared to Brazil. Okay, interesting, interesting. So where did you go in the year between Brazil and Argentina? Okay, so uh, we went to uh, Costa Rica uh, in the second year. Uh, again, in Costa Rica, there was not a lot of cash crop production, but uh, we got to experience uh, how they produce coffee, uh, tea, all the tropical fruits. Uh, so it was a really uh, eye-opener. Pineapples, that would, I mean, we had oodles and oodles of uh, visits with pineapple farms and processing so we got to see a different side of agriculture compared to what we were used to seeing in Brazil and Argentina, but it was very, very educational. Uh, and uh, Costa Rica is a beautiful country uh, when it comes to tourism and to uh, the scenery. Um, and it was a little different twist compared to what we were used to. But, uh, you know, most of our participants were uh, couples. Uh, so to keep the ladies happy in the group from year to year, you needed to have a little bit of a compromise. Uh, so we decided to have a little bit of a different twist that one year uh, to accommodate their interests. And so a lot of the things that we visited there, you know, were appealing to both man and wife. Right. But uh, I know the women enjoyed that trip probably uh, more than say Brazil or Argentina, especially if they weren't directly involved in the, their farm operation back home in Canada. Right. And it's something totally different that we don't see, you know, I mean, we see soybeans here. So to go see pineapples or coffee being grown would be amazing. And, um, and tell me about the farmers and those areas, you know, are they mostly subsistence farmers or are there larger operations in Costa Rica? How does that dynamic look? Uh, I think the the major, uh, like the pineapple plantations, the coffee plantations, they're all owned by uh, conglomerates outside of the country. Okay. Uh, really, I would say, I'm not going to call it a third world country, uh, but most of the people that uh, farmed in Costa Rica were probably working for some big uh, company that owned the, uh, the rights to the pineapples or the bananas or what have you. Uh, so that they did, you didn't see the big, big expansion farms like you saw in Argentina or Brazil. No. Right. Interesting. Okay. Where did you head after Argentina? Uh, California. Ooh. All right. Let's hear about it. Well, uh, California, first of all, we were, we spent most of our time in the Northern part where a lot of the big brush fires have been taking place the last few years. So we saw, we drove through parts of the, of Northern California, where the, you could see the damage from the previous fires and things. Um, tremendous technology. Uh, probably of all the trips we've done, uh, I was most impressed with Northern California. Um, I mean, they are the leaders 
uh, at least in my estimation, when it comes to production of some of the uh, fruit and vegetables that uh, you know we we consume here in Canada. Uh, their biggest problem there, again, as I said earlier in my presentation, every country seems to have a challenge. In California, their concern is water. Uh, the day will come when they're going to drain their aquifers and water will become the limiting uh, resource for them to continue to produce food. So they're, they're very, very conscious about water conservation uh, and they're lobbying the government all the time to try and get more and more water set aside for agriculture because without agriculture um, uh, without water their, their agriculture will die so to show you and it's very very dry there so I'm talking mostly around San Francisco San Joaquin Valley that area there just beautiful country um, they, they uh, lots of hay produced there lots of hay that gets exported to other parts of the world they tend to bale their hay at night because it's so dry no humidity uh, that they would lose all their alfalfa leaves, what have you. So just to, to show you the compromise in temperatures and humidity, wow. they're bailing their their big fields of hay that are under irrigation during the evening when they have some dew on the plants so they can preserve the quality of their of the product. Their other, other big issue they have there is labor uh, because there's so much in the way of fruit, uh, and vegetables that require hand labor, picking, uh, grading, uh, what have you. They're trying to automate their industry as much as possible with robots, uh, with pruning techniques. Uh, like everything they're trying to do is to reduce their labor requirements. And uh, that's a big challenge for them. Uh, and uh, their ba- one of their major costs of production is labor, uh, labor and water. And uh, they're, they're striving, uh, they're, all the universities are working with the farmers, uh, their engineering departments, uh, developing ways to uh, harvest, their, harvest their fruit uh, without hand labor, uh, how to grade it, everything else. It was quite, it was like 20 years ahead of time uh, to see the kind of technology they're trying to work with here, uh, again, to reduce labor costs and keep their efficiency down. That's amazing. And so, I mean, you're seeing a diverse group of crops there, but give us an idea. What were you seeing for fruits and vegetables there in Northern California? So, I mean, obviously uh, we were in a lot of wine country, wine country, um, but there was like acres and acres of things like pecans, uh, almonds, uh, lots and lots of strawberries, things that, uh, you know, we had never seen through, but, you know, an almond tree or a pistachio tree is like a cherry tree in the Niagara Peninsula. I mean, it's, it, it's until you see the fruit, you wouldn't know the difference, but just acres and acres of, of these uh, vineyards or orchards, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and uh, you don't see anybody in there. Like they're, I mean, because of the dry climate, uh, I don't think they have the disease pressure that we would have say here in Ontario with the humidity. Um, and with biological uh, controls in the orchards and vineyards, uh, you don't see a lot of sprayers running through the countryside. You don't see a lot of weeds in the uh, fields because everything is on trickle irrigation. Uh, and, uh, and it was just amazing how much production was being uh, accomplished with such little rainfall and little uh, access to water. Yeah, that's fascinating. 
I know when I went on the Midwest crop tour a few years ago now, just learning about the Ogallala aquifer and the pace that it's shrinking at. And it's scary to think, you know, how much food is produced in the area above that aquifer and how much food that supports. So it will be really interesting to see how we're able to overcome that in the future years. Yeah, that's their biggest, that's their biggest fear right now is how much water and when will we run out of it? Yeah, yeah, no, I believe that. So where was your last trip, Jerry? This was uh, this was after I left Clark, so I haven't heard about these ones. <laughs> okay, so uh, after uh, California, we uh, decided to go to Spain and Portugal. And uh, that one there was, again, one of my highlights. Uh, I mean, both for uh, the male and female people in our group, uh, the... the uh, Scenery and and those areas are are incredible. The agriculture, I mean, you don't hear much about the agriculture coming out of Spain, but it's 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 a it's a massive area with lots and lots of production. Uh, the big thing there was uh, olives. Oh wow! And we drove on some of the we drove on some of the interstate highways, just like we did in California, looking at uh, almonds and pecans and things. Here, uh, it was just acres and acres of olives growing up on the sides of the hills, uh, just thousands and thousands of acres. I mean, nobody would ever think uh, that there was that many olive trees in the world, but there was just end-to-end, miles and miles of them. And Spain, of course, is a leading producer of olives throughout and olive oil throughout the world. So naturally, at every meal, uh, there was olive, fresh olives on the table. It was just like us having uh, celery sticks or carrot sticks at a, at a lunch or what have you. Uh, but... Uh, Probably from a scenic, from a scenic trip, uh, uh, in combination with agriculture, it was pro- it was one I would probably definitely go back to. Um, we drove along the coasts of Portugal and Spain, Mediterranean, and up along the Atlantic, uh, where I mean, there's agriculture everywhere. Uh, but the you know to see the cliffs and the water and everything like that, I can see why a lot of uh, Canadians are uh, now spending their winters in Spain and Portugal. Beautiful climate. And uh, not a very expensive place to live relative to, say, uh, uh, Florida or Caribbean or something like that. But, uh, again, uh, very, very interesting agriculture. Uh, and uh, it was it was good. I, I, I have to admit all the trips we've taken have been uh, – there's been no disappointments as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, you know, I know you're going to ask me which one would I go back <laughs> to. I, I think I still want to – I still think I want to go to other – uh, countries in the world, uh, because everyone we've gone to has been an eye opener and, and quite an experience. Absolutely, that sounds amazing. And all of these trips, you typically go February or March, is that correct? Uh, yeah, we usually are going like right about now because we want to be back in time to start uh, our cropping season. Unfortunately, uh, that's probably why we've been down in the southern parts. Uh, rather than say going to Europe, whatever, because we're trying to see some agriculture uh, in growing season, and those and they're in the, into their agriculture at that stage of the game, right? So our our trip, uh, which we were scheduled to do for Poland and the Ukraine, uh, we actually were hoping to go the first week of April uh, because they thought there were areas there where they would already be starting to uh, do some farming, uh, but that got of course canceled for now. But we're hoping to go back there once uh, things clear up. 
Yeah, that would be a fantastic trip too. A little bit more similar to what we see here, but on a different kind of a scale. Exactly, exactly. Where else is on the bucket list to travel to, Jerry? Well, I, uh, I, I definitely think, uh, um, you know, you hear about the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands are one of the largest producers of agricultural products in the world. And for that little area to produce that kind of production, I mean, anybody who's of Dutch origin would understand that. But the people that are on our trip that are not from uh, Holland originally, I think it would be quite an eye opener. So uh, my goal would be yet to, to, to take a group to Holland, but take them there during the growing season uh, to really witness the production that goes on there. And of course, it's production that's completely different to what we see here with the tulips and the flowers and what have you. But, uh, uh, you know, I've been reading up about it. And uh, the nice thing about those kind of places, uh, you would have no trouble finding contacts. Uh, we have relatives here that have relatives back there. That makes for a real interesting trip because we get to go to places that most people wouldn't get to see. And that's, that, that's the key to this whole thing is having contacts that allow you to visit institutions or farms uh, that you would not have access to as a general tourist. Oh, definitely. Get an insider's perspective. That's what would make the trip. Yeah. You've obviously seen a lot and, you know, every place that you travel to practices are different. Are there any things that you've picked up on that you think we could adopt here in Ontario that would help us to produce production or cultural practices? I, I think we've got things figured out here pretty good, personally. Um, and I, I think the important thing for our industry in Canada is to seek out leading technology. And I'm going to go back to the Chinese. I, I remember uh, China, when they wanted to learn about how to grow hogs or raise hogs, they sent people to, like, I remember Denmark, which was the leading hog uh, producer in the world, I guess, for technology. And they brought that technology back to China. And I, I think we need to, if we, if there are places in the world where they're, they have technology that would improve our systems, then we need to send people there to get educated. But I think for the most part, we're, like, we're, we're pretty good. I don't think we have to take a backseat to any place in the world, uh, especially in Ontario. Uh, you know, our farmers have always been behind the eight ball when it comes to competing with the American farmer. And uh, I'm pretty proud of the fact that we, we can hold our heads up pretty high and say we're not, we're not behind very far from anybody else in the world. That's a good statement. I like that. <laughs> so it sounds to me like if somebody was thinking about going on a farm tour for the first time, it sounds like maybe that Spain-Portugal trip would be a nice place to go, especially if you were going as a family but wanted to see some agriculture too. Would that be maybe the first place you would recommend to folks? Uh, yeah, like, yeah like, there's such a variety. I mean, California would be too. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, it's like driving from here to Chicago. Uh, you see soybeans and cornfields, and after the first day or two, you get a little tired of looking at them, right? And, and unfortunately, that's what Brazil and Argentina are like. So, I mean, we have to keep the other half of our, like our, our couples happy. And, you know, they like a day to go shopping at the local mall or sitting by the hotel for a day. Uh, so we, we needed to keep it spicy 
And that's where even California and uh, Costa Rica offered both. So we could go visit a farm in the morning, have lunch, and then you know, do something that was touristy in the afternoon. Uh, and that's what kept everybody happy. And that's what allowed people to keep wanting to come back year after year. I think if it would have been a strictly all men's club, you know, we just went and looked at farms and farms and farms. I think we would lose uh, participants and not have been able to keep this thing going for such a long period of time. I would agree with that. I think, yeah, to get people to return year after year, you have to add in a bit of variety to it. But that's amazing. I don't honestly, I don't know of anybody else that has uh, has continued to do something like that with growers and friends. And I think that that's fantastic and keep learning as you go, which is amazing. That's right. And the nice thing that's happened is uh, other uh, people who have been on our trips are, are offering uh, places that they've gone by themselves. And they've come back and said, you know, you really should look at somebody recommended Israel saying uh, it was amazing. So somebody, one of my customers came back, said, we've been in Israel. It was incredible. I said, we even went into a travel agency, found the names of two travel agents that could help us. Well, that makes our job so easy, right? You make a couple of emails uh, this is when we want to go. Please figure out an itinerary, tell me how much it's going to cost, and uh, we'll see you at the airport. So it's really not a difficult uh, task to organize as long as you have some help, which we've been fortunate enough to have. Definitely. And speaking of that, if there are people that listen to this, Jerry, that have questions on some of the tours that you've been on uh, or the tour guides, are you open to folks getting a hold of you to ask some of those questions too? Absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect. Thanks, Jerry. Well, I appreciate this. This has been awesome. Like I said, it's no one's been able to travel anywhere this winter. And I think there's a lot of people out there that would like to get out on, on some farm tours and see some different places in the world. So I really appreciate you sharing your experiences with us today. It's been a pleasure. Very good. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. For more episodes, please subscribe. You can find updates to new episodes on my Twitter at prosperityag0l.